This morning we continue our study through Psalm 119, this great alphabetic acrostic where each stanza of eight verses starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Last Sunday we studied four stanzas, the Kaf, Lamed, Mem, and Nun stanzas. And the central theme of those stanzas, which by the way, those stanzas really represent the the core or the center of the psalm. And so it's kind of the central theme of the center of the psalm is obedience. If you wanted to sum it up in one word, obedience. That was the focus. The life of faith is a life of obedience, a life of following the word of God, trusting that what he says is the truth. That his instructions for life in this world are the best way to live. Even when our eyes and our ears tell us that there is great fun and pleasure to be had, and even success, if we'll just go our own way. And we saw last week how the psalmist remained committed to keeping God's word when all those around him turned away and mocked him for being faithful. And he relied on the forever settled word of God, the lamp for his feet and the light for his path. He testified that by studying the scriptures, he gained true wisdom and he learned to hate every false way. These were some of the things that we observed last week. Well, today we're planning to study the next four stanzas, which build on this theme of obedience. And to understand what he's saying, we need to consider the nature of truth. There's a great deal of confusion today about truth. Many people are skeptics. They ask questions like the question that Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth, he said. It's as if they wonder if there can ever be such a thing even as truth. Some people think that truth if it does exist, is ultimately unknowable. There's no way for us to be certain that we've gotten to the bottom of it, certain that we know what is actually the truth. But when we think about the the idea of truth, what, what is this whole concept of truth? There's one thing that we observe, and that is truth is exclusive. What do I mean by that? Well, if something is true, then it's not false. I mean, I know that sounds like it's really deep, but it's not. Uh, if, if something's true, it, it's not false. It's exclusive. Truth and error cannot coexist. As if they're both valid things to believe. So in other words, if we choose to believe that which is true then by definition, we have to refuse that which is false. That's kind of the nature of truth. It's just the way truth is. We don't have to like it. People say, well, I don't really like that. So what? It's just the truth. If we embrace what is true, we have to refuse what is false. Now, practically speaking, people violate this principle all the time. Right? We hold conflicting ideas about things, and we don't even realize that we are in conflict with our own beliefs. I'll give you an example of that. 
this week, there's an awful lot of outrage over the Super Bowl halftime show from last week. Anybody hear anything this week about that? A couple of you. Okay. Just a little bit. Now, by all accounts, it was a spectacle of public indecency with women flaunting their bodies on stage in front of tens or hundreds of millions of people watching on TV. These women and many who were cheering them on have taken public stands against our society's tendency to treat women and girls as mere objects of desire. And so on one hand, they have made public statements about how women are not just objects. Women should be treated as as human beings of worth and dignity and value. And at the same time, they are displaying themselves as objects and being cheered on by some for doing that. Now that, that seems inconsistent, doesn't it? And people have rightly this week been calling them out for their inconsistency, have been saying, this is inconsistent. You can't say it's wrong to objectify women and then get up and treat yourself as an object. That's inconsistent. But this is what we do, oftentimes. If it's true that objectifying women is wrong, and as Christians, we absolutely should agree that it is wrong to treat women as objects. We'll talk more about that tonight. But, but really, it, it is wrong, and we should agree with that. If that's true, then the halftime show last Sunday was inappropriate and wrong. It's not something to be celebrated and certainly not something to be broadcast to millions of people around the world. Now, um, I say that and I realize there's a danger here that we may get really self-righteous and we might point out all of the things that are wrong with all those people out there, but we need to realize that we have the same tendency to be inconsistent. The writer of Psalm 119 made a commitment to live by God's word, to obey it, to embrace the truth. And if he's going to embrace the truth, that means he has to reject what is false. So, have you made such a commitment? If you're a Christian, then you need to to see that God's word calls you to make that kind of commitment. You and I must seek to carefully and diligently obey the Word of God. We can't trust Christ for our salvation and then decide to go out and live however we want. You see, that's not how this works. That's not consistent. That's trying to hold on to truth and error at the same time. But if you and I choose to live by God's Word and build our lives on the framework of truth, that choice is going to have a pretty significant impact. Again, if we choose to believe the truth, we have to reject that which is false. If we choose to follow God's way, we have to reject every other possible way in which we could live. There are some some choices that have to be made, and they have to be made a certain way, if we are going to follow God's way and obey God's word. 
If we're going to choose to align ourselves with God's people, those people who fear Him, those people who, like us, want to obey Him, then that means we're going to have to separate ourselves from those who who don't have any regard for Him, who don't have any interest in living His way. This is precisely the place where many Christians struggle and try to hold on to two incompatible ideas. Right? We want to trust Christ and follow Him. But we don't want to cut ourselves off from those who rebel against Him. Right? We want to somehow trust Christ and be followers of Christ, but at the same time, keep a hold on and keep some fellowship with those people who are rebelling against Him and rejecting Him. We want to live by truth, but we don't want to turn away from those who love the false way. Unfortunately, we really don't get to do both. Because here's the, 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 the real hard truth that we run into here. If we don't turn away from those who reject Christ and His Word, then we're not truly obeying His Word. We're not truly following Him. So our claim to be His disciples and be faithful is proven false. When this happens, we need to realize that. And we need to repent. We need to return to obedience, even though that makes... That really requires us to make some difficult decisions. Now all of this, I say this as introduction because this is really what the psalmist speaks about today. Look at verse 113. This first stanza here today. Verse 113 to verse 120. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your word that I may live, and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Hold me up, and I shall be safe, and I shall observe your statutes continually. You reject all those who stray from your statutes, for their deceit is falsehood. You put away all the wicked of the earth like dross, therefore I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Look at verse 113. The way this stanza begins, I hate the double-minded. What a statement. Does he really hate those who are double-minded? Those who can't make up their mind about which path to take? That seems to be the picture there. Shouldn't he just be patient with them? Lots of people have a hard time choosing. When I was a kid, my parents used to take us to Baskin-Robbins. If you've ever been there, you know. 31 flavors. It was overwhelming. How could you choose? We kind of get that. When we have too many options, it makes it hard to choose. But we're not talking about choosing ice cream here. You see, the issue here of these who are double-minded, those who cannot choose, those who are standing there and, and, and just can't aren't sure which path to take, and they go back and forth. They're double-minded. They're not able to commit. 
What he's talking here is not something like ice cream flavor. These are people who have come face to face with the law of God. How do I know that? Because the second half of the verse, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. It's the law of God that's in view here. These people have come face to face with God's law. And they just can't decide if they should commit to Him or not. They just can't decide if it's worth following Him or not. They just can't decide if that's the true path or not. They're like those people who want to come to church once in a while, but aren't really sure they want to commit to Christ. Not really sure they want to get baptized and join the church and make a public profession of their faith. There's just too much at stake, and so they can't decide. But the psalmist recognizes that by not deciding, they're actually making a choice. How so? Well, the truth is staring them in the face. But they can't decide if it's worth believing. If it's worth committing themselves to it. Not an issue of personal preference here, which ice cream flavor you like. It's the truth. The truth is not something to be dis- discussed or negotiated. The truth is not something for us to, to come to terms with. The truth is something to be believed, period. It's staring us in the face. When we open the Word of God, it's right there. And we don't get to sit here and go, well, I'm just not sure I'm ready to commit to that. No, it's the truth. And if you're not willing to commit to it, then you're rejecting it. There's no middle ground. We really, really, really don't like black and white in our society today. We want some gray, and there's no gray here. The truth is true and must be accepted and believed, and if you don't do that, you're rejecting it. It's black or it's white. That's really, that's really all it is. And that's why the psalmist says, I hate those who are double-minded because they won't make up their minds, but in reality, they are rejecting the Word of God. The psalmist doesn't have that problem. And if you and I, if we have realized that we are sinners who deserve death and hell, and that Jesus, God's very own Son, died for our sins, if we have seen that, if we've realized and we've understood that truth, then we cling to it for dear life. No wavering, just believing. That's what the psalmist has done with the Word of God here. His testimony throughout this stanza is that he is totally committed to faith. Notice how he describes it. Verse 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. That is, when I go into battle, I've got, I've got a, a, a shield. I've got something to protect me. And that's you, Lord. You're it. Okay. His only hope is in the Word of God. And notice verse 115. He says, get away from me, all of you who are evil, all of you who are wicked, all of you who don't care about God and God's law. Get away from me because I want to follow God. I want to follow the Lord. And I can't do it if you won't leave me alone. And so he tells all these people to get away. Those who love their sin, those who are unwilling to commit to obedience, How much is riding on God's Word? Look at verse 116. It's His whole life, right? 
that I may live, he says. Everything is at stake here. His life and his hope in verse 116, verse 117, it's his safety. Everything is at stake here. But he is trusting in the Lord, not going with the crowd. There's no wavering. There's no commitment phobia. But what's interesting to me as we get to the end of this stanza is that the real clincher for the psalmist is this. He knows that judgment is coming. The last three verses of the stanza, that's the focus. Judgment is coming. Look at how God responds to those who don't obey His Word. Those who don't follow the truth. Verse 118, you reject them. Verse 119, you put them away from off the earth like dross. The picture here is of refining gold or silver. To be, it, it's melted down so that the impurities can rise to the surface. And when the impurities rise from the surface, they're skimmed off the top and they're just thrown away. And he says, that's what you do with the wicked. You just, you, you just skim them off the top of the earth and you get rid of them. That's judgment. He says, judgment's coming. Judgment is coming. You, you reject them. You get rid of them. You scoop them off the earth and throw them away. Notice what he says in verse 120. My flesh trembles for fear of you. And I'm afraid of your judgments. I think, again, sometimes we try to domesticate God. Well, the Bible says to fear the Lord, but that doesn't mean to really be afraid. Well, what is he saying here? My flesh trembles for fear of you. I am afraid of your judgments. I think it sounds like he realizes judgment is real. Judgment is real and it's coming. And because of that, he's afraid of the judgment. And rightly so. So what's the alternative? If judgment's coming, if the the wicked are going to be removed from the earth like dross, if the Lord is going to reject them, what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is to obey the Word of God. To obey His Word because judgment is real. That's what the psalmist says. Judgment's real. It's coming. The end is coming. And you know what? Here we are today. More than 2,000 years closer than when the psalmist wrote these words. If the judgment was real for him, then we ought to see we're even closer to it today than he was. Judgment is coming. God's judgment on the wicked. God's judgment on those who don't obey and won't follow His way of life. And because judgment's real, we ought to obey the Word. This ought to move us to obey. It ought to move us to be willing to take whatever steps are necessary. Does that mean I have to cut off certain people out of my life? Maybe so. If they're scoffers, if they're ones who reject the Word and don't want anything to do with God, I may have to separate myself from them because I'm committed to obeying the truth. Does that mean I may have to cut out certain things out of my life? Yes, maybe so. Because I want to commit to following the truth and I can't do that. 
I can't dabble around in, these, in, in, in worldly things and sinful things if I'm going to follow the truth. I've got to be serious because judgment's coming and it's real. And we don't get to sit here and waver back and forth. Well, should I follow the Lord or not? Should I believe the truth or not? When we do that, what we're saying is I don't believe it's actually the truth because if I believe it's the truth, it's, there's no choice. I've got to follow the truth. Sometimes we obey merely out of the fear of consequences. Fear is not a, an altogether wrong motivation. The psalmist expresses it here. We, we touched on it just a little bit in Sunday school this morning in the book of Jude, where he says that some people we save with fear. We recognize the judgment's coming. For some people, we've got to warn them about the judgment and, and use that warning as a way of pulling them back and causing them to turn to Christ. But obeying the Lord out of the fear of the consequences is kind of like how you drive when you see a police officer pull up behind you on the highway. And all of a sudden, everybody is going right at the speed limit. But then the police officer turns off the highway and everybody goes back to their normal driving, right? So are there any positive reasons for us to fear, I'm sorry, for us to obey God's word and choose his way? Yes, judgment is real and it's coming. That ought to cause us to obey. But are there any positive reasons and benefits? And I would say, yes, there are many of them. And the psalmist describes a few of them in the next three stanzas. The first one we see in verses 121 to 128, it's this. Obey God's word because it is priceless and precious. Notice what he says in verse 121. I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the proud oppress me. My eyes fail from seeking your salvation and your righteous word. Deal with your servant according to your mercy and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. Therefore, I love your commandments more than gold. Yes, than fine gold. Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right, I hate every false way. When I was in high school, I took a, uh, we took a class. In fact, it was required for all, uh, all the students in my high school. Maybe this is the way all, everywhere. I don't know. But uh, we had to take an ec- economics class. And I remember in that economics class learning a concept called opportunity cost. An opportunity cost is this idea that whenever we choose to do one thing, we are, at the very same time, choosing not to do something else. Actually, a whole lot of other things. And so there is an opportunity cost. There's something that we have to give up if we're going to choose something else. That's always the way it is. You only have so much money. You only have so many resources. You only have so many opportunities. And if I choose to go this way, I'm choosing not to go that way. And again, this is just the reality of the way things work. So there is an opportunity cost when it comes to following God and His Word. And this stanza, the psalmist seems to be uh, touching on that idea. When we choose to obey the Scriptures, we are choosing not to defend ourselves against those who 
uh, oppress us and mistreat us. Right? We're, we're, not, we're choosing to not defend ourselves. And the psalmist touches on that here. At the same time, we're choosing to rely on the Lord to come to our defense. To wait patiently, even when it seems like He's delaying or He's forgotten about us. We're casting ourselves on His mercy and satisfying ourselves in His Word rather than taking matters into our own hands. Notice how the psalmist does this. Verse 126, he says, It is time for you to act, O Yahweh. It's time for you to act, God. It's not time for me to step in because God doesn't seem to be doing anything or because He's not moving fast enough or He's not doing what I want Him to do. It's not time for me to deal with my enemies. Or rather, I would say it this way, it's not time for me to deal with my enemies my own way because God's way doesn't seem to be working. No. The psalmist says, it's time for you, Lord. It's time for you to act. But here's the motivating factor. Why is the psalmist choosing to trust in God rather than trying to fix his problems himself. And he's, he's talking about that all through the stanza. He trusts in the Lord. He chose this path. But, but, and then he, he's, he's crying out for the Lord to, to, to deal with these problems. Why? Because he says he loves God's word better than gold. Right? He loves God's word better than gold. This is the opportunity cost to following the ways of God. He has to choose between one thing or the other. Can we love God and love gold at the same time? Well, actually, Jesus answered that question for us directly, didn't he? Matthew chapter 6. What did Jesus say? No. You can't love God and material things at the same time. Just like you can't, uh, you can't belong to two different masters at the same time. You can't. You can only belong to one master. And you can only love one thing. If you love God, then you can't love gold. But if you love gold, then you don't love God. That's what Jesus said. If you're pursuing wealth and material things as the main focus of your life, then you can't say what the psalmist says here. He says he loves God's word more than gold. And he hates every false way. But if God's word is more precious than gold, and it is, it's worth more than all the wealth this world has to offer. Does it cost you something to choose God and his way? Yes. It costs you the pursuit of material wealth. It costs you the pursuit of material advantages. It costs you the pursuit of earthly influences. It costs you the pursuit of all of the things in this life that everybody else around you values so much. You can't pursue those things if you're choosing to love God and love His Word. There's a cost. But God's Word is absolutely precious. It's worth far more than anything you can get in this world. To place your life in His hands to place your eternity in His hands is worth it. 
I love what the psalmist says in verse 124. Deal with your servant according to your mercy. See, he's casting himself upon the mercy of God. He's trusting. He's trusting that the Lord will not fail him. He's trusting the Lord to deal with his enemies. He's trusting the Lord to to save him and protect him. He's relying on the Lord to act and take take matters into his hands rather than doing it himself. And this is where we fail so often because we just get tired of waiting. We get tired of waiting around for God to, to work. We start to think it's not working. It's not happening. The stuff I'm doing isn't working. I've got to try and find something else. And we begin to pursue worldly ways and worldly thinking and worldly means to to achieve the goals that we have rather than trusting the Lord. But listen, He will never fail you. And the rewards of eternity are, are worth far more than having your best life now. That's what He offers. That's why the psalmist says, Your word, I love it, it's better than gold. I commit everything to you. I follow you in every way. And so we see the psalmist emphasizes that the word of God is precious. It's priceless. Therefore, we ought to obey it. We ought to follow it because it's worth it. You're trading in whatever this world has to offer for what God is offering. It's far greater. It's a good exchange. Now, there's another reason that God's word ought to be followed. There's another reason we should choose God's word and God's way over our own. And the next stanza, he brings that out. Look at verse 129. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Look upon me and be merciful to me as your custom is toward those who love your name. Direct my uh, my steps by your word and let no iniquity have dominion over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Rivers of water run down my eyes because men do not keep your law. In this stanza, what's kind of interesting as we look at this stanza, there's actually several allusions made here to the period of the Exodus, Israel's deliverance from Egypt. I'm going to point them out to you here. First of all, he says in verse 129 that Yahweh's testimonies are wonderful. That word wonderful is used uh, in in the book of Exodus. Uh, I think especially in Exodus 15, speaking about the the, uh, parting of the Red Sea and the, the drowning of the Egyptians. That is described as a wonderful work of God. It's the same terminology here. And so there's an instant kind of connection there. But then he speaks in verse 130 about the Lord providing light in the darkness, right? The entrance or the opening up of your words gives life, or gives light rather. And of course, we know that in the, in the wilderness, the Lord provided a pillar of fire. He provided light for his people. In verse 131, he talks about satisfying the thirsty. Right? I long for your commandments. I panted for you. And of course, we have numerous times in the wilderness where the Lord provided water for his people and satisfied their thirst. Verse 133 talks about directing the psalmist's steps. And again, the, 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 the 40 years in the wilderness was an example of God directing the steps of his people. 
Verse 134, he asks the Lord to redeem him. And again, that term redeem is used often in the book of Deuteronomy to refer to Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. The Lord, the Lord redeemed them from slavery. The Lord redeemed them from slavery. That's said over and over again throughout the book of Deuteronomy. But probably the clincher is verse 135. Make your face shine upon your servant. That's almost a direct quote from Numbers chapter 6 and the, the priestly blessing that, uh, that, that the Lord gave. Numbers 6 verse 24 says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And so I think what the psalmist is doing in this particular stanza is he's, he's drawing on Israel's history. He's kind of looking back in the past, specifically at God's grace in saving the people. What God did to save them from Egypt, from their slavery. And in light of all that God has done for them, notice what he says at the very end of the stanza, the last verse of the stanza. He says, I Weep, I mourn, rivers of water run down my eyes. Why? Because men don't keep your law. What does this suggest? It suggests that as the psalmist is thinking back on all that God did to save them, he realizes that if God saved them so graciously, they ought to obey His law. They ought to follow Him. And it, and it, and it, it, it grieves him that some of these very same people who are Israelites just like he is, who have this heritage of God's salvation and God's grace, have have refused to obey, have refused to follow God's word. And so this is another reason why we ought to choose to obey God's word, because we remember his grace in salvation. Of course, we know that God went to great lengths to rescue the people of Israel from their bondage in Egypt, calling Moses in the wilderness, the burning bush, and sending Moses down to Egypt, and then all of the, the wonders and the signs and the plagues that he did, and all of that in order to, uh, to, to deliver the people and get them uh, to be able to leave Egypt. He went to great lengths to save them. And I think the Bible indicates that there are parallels for us as well. Because we know the Lord went to great lengths to save us, didn't he? The Apostle John speaks about this in the opening chapter of his gospel. John 1 and verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know, Jesus Christ is not an exalted man. Jesus Christ is not an angel. Jesus Christ was, according to John here, with God. And he was God, even from the very beginning of time. That's who Jesus Christ is. But just a few verses later, in John 1 and verse 14, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Although Jesus was God in heaven, he became flesh. He came down to earth to dwell among men as one of us. Talk about going the distance. How far did he have to go to save us? He had to come all the way down from heaven to earth to become one of us. Not just to become a man. Not just so he could give us a good example of how we should live, but he came down to be a substitute. To be offered as a sacrifice for our sins. 
as we read there in that same chapter of John, chapter 1, John the Baptist saw Jesus. And what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Think about what Jesus did to save you. Think about where he came from. Think about what he endured. And then obey his word. Why? Because of his amazing grace. If he did that for you, and he did that for me, shouldn't we obey his word? The psalmist says, my my eyes, (laughs) they shed rivers of water because there are men who don't obey the word of God. Those who've experienced his grace and yet they reject him and refuse to obey. But let's look very briefly at one final stanza today. Verses 137 to 144. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Your testimonies which you have commanded are righteous and very faithful. My zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your words. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your commandments are my delights. The righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding, and I shall live. The, the, the focus here, and you can see it if you just kind of glance down through this stanza, you can see one word that's repeated over and over again. The emphasis here is on the righteousness of Yahweh and His Word. It's tested and proven by fire. He gives testimony here, the psalmist does. God is righteous in verse 137. And so are His judgments. They're faithful and true in verse 138. Why would anyone forget them? And again, the psalmist actually becomes angry when he thinks about this in verse 139, because there are some who have disregarded God's word. Who could possibly dismiss the words of God and His commandments? They are so pure. Verse 140. It's interesting that throughout this stanza, because he kind of passes back and forth between discussing Yahweh's words and Yahweh's own nature. And so he talks about in verse 137 how Yahweh is righteous and his judgments are upright. So both Yahweh himself and his words or his commands are righteous. And then he continues to talk about his words down through verse 141. But then in verse 142, he again emphasizes Yahweh's own righteousness. It is everlasting and eternal, he says. But in the very same sentence, he says that the law is truth. And again, in verse 144, he speaks of the righteousness of Yahweh's testimonies and and says they're also eternal. The point here, what I think is interesting in this dual kind of back and forth between the nature of God and the word of God is this, that God's word is just like God himself. Eternally righteous, always trustworthy, unchanging truth. Again, lots of people say they're committed to truth. They'll follow the truth wherever it leads, they say. There's a popular term um, among atheists and agnostics today. They like to call themselves free thinkers. Anybody ever heard of that before? The free thinkers. 
And, and they use that term because they, they, they claim that they are free from any prior commitment to any ideology or belief system. They claim that they approach, uh, that they approach any sort of uh, truth claim or any sort of idea. They, they claim that they approach it completely unbiased. They just apply pure reason and think through the issue and then come down on the side of the truth. They say, well, we'll follow the evidence wherever it leads and we'll make whatever conclusions are reasonable. And they love to say that that's what they do. And that's what they call themselves free thinkers. They're free, they say, to think clearly about life and the world and the way things are. But let me suggest to you that if they were truly free thinkers, truly committed to following the facts wherever they lead, truly committed to embracing the truth wherever it is found, they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They would trust God, and they would trust His Word, and they would be saved. This goes all the way back to what I said about verse 113. I hate the double-minded. Why? Because, Because pretending that somehow we're just not sure about what the truth is, We're just not sure if this path is the right one, if it's really true or not. We're just not sure if God's word is really true. We're just not sure if we should obey it and follow it. Well, that's a very deceptive game. But what the person is actually doing when they're saying that is they're saying, I reject God's truth. I reject God's God's authority. I reject his word. And I'm going to put myself in the position of the truth and the truth teller, and the truth discerner. I'm the free thinker. I'm the one who decides what's true and what's false. And I'm just not so sure about this whole Bible thing. Now the reality is, if we're really committed to truth, the truth is staring us in the face when we open the Word of God. And the commitment to the truth says, I obey because it's the truth. Period. Full stop. The psalmist in this last stanza that we're discussing this morning is speaking here about the fact that God's word is true. Just like God is true. Eternally righteous. Always trustworthy. Unchanging truth. I said earlier that truth has the undeniable quality we, could call, we might call exclusivity. If we embrace what is true, we have to reject all that is false. So to love God's word and remember his precepts and follow his commands is to embrace that which is eternally true and to turn away from everything that is false. And the psalmist says, what is eternally true here in this stanza? He says it in verse 142, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. And again in verse 144, the righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. God never changes. God's truth never changes. You can't claim to believe the truth while dabbling in lies. And you can't claim to love righteousness while indulging in sin. This, at its heart, is the message of Psalm 119. Obey the Lord. Obey the Lord by following His Word. Why? Because His judgments are real. 
because it is precious and priceless, because he graciously saved you, and because it is absolute truth. Nothing else compares to it. Nothing ever will. No worldly philosophy, no worldly idea, no material wealth, no power, no prestige. Nothing compares to the truth that God has given us in his word. He alone is righteous and true. His word alone is the final authority on what is right and true. Let the word of God be your shield. Let it be your protector and your strength and your song. And you will find that his riches are greater. His wisdom is higher. His peace is more sure than anything you can follow in this life. Don't waver and don't wait. Choose now to trust his word and obey. Let's pray. Father, I feel the tension between what I know to be true and what I oftentimes see in my own life. The struggle to do what is right. The struggle to obey the truth that we know. Forgive me for my failure to often to walk in obedience to the truth. Help me to see that your word is precious and priceless. That it's absolutely true. That it's a sure foundation. That it's better than anything this world can offer. Incline my heart to obey it. And I pray you do that for each one of us here today. Give us hearts that long for your truth. Give us hearts that are willing to obey no matter what the cost. And help us to follow the path that you've laid out for us in your word. Thank you for your grace that enables us to obey. Thank you for your mercy that that, that causes us to repent and welcomes us back when we turn again to you. Help us to walk in obedience today. And I pray if anyone's here this morning who's not trusted in Christ, who's never repented of their sin and admitted they were, they were uh, guilty and, and that they are condemned and realized they need a Savior, I pray that today they would cry out to you for mercy. They would believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins and that He offers them hope and life if they will just turn to Him and trust Him. And I pray they would do that now. In Jesus' name, amen.